Hi, you're listening to Talking Your Way to Change, a podcast that explores psychotherapy and issues related to mental health. I'm your host, Sam Banker. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about alcohol, alcohol addiction disorders, treatment, and recovery. My special guest is Dr. Chris Anderson, owner of Innovative Psychological Consultants, an outpatient mental health clinic providing psychological assessment and testing psychotherapy, and psychiatry in Maple Grove and the serving the surrounding areas. Dr. Anderson has been in practice for over 25 years. His passion for chemical dependency and mental health recovery stems from the belief that despite people's fears that they will be judged or that their problems are unique, the reality is that people are people and their problems do not differ nearly as much as they perceive. Chris and I met in the doctoral program at the University of St. Thomas in August of 2003. We were in the same cohort and also a subgroup that would meet and provide support and gentle encouragement to other to each other to stay on track. I currently work at his clinic and have for over 10 years. Innovative Psychological Consultants is a great place to work and I love the professional environment he's created there. Chris, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to be having this conversation with you today. Absolutely, Zan. I appreciate your having me on. I'm looking forward to it as well. Great. I thought maybe what we could do is we could start by you telling listeners your experiences of working in addictions, you know, perhaps maybe the populations, the settings, the types of addictions you've worked with. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, uh, without getting you know too long-winded and going through my entire resume with you, um, sure. probably the biggest you know uh, thing that most people might recognize is I did my doctoral internship at Hazelton, uh, which is a chemical dependency uh, treatment program that's sort of renowned, obviously in Minnesota and across the country. Um, I actually worked with the uh, in the in the uh, adolescent uh, program. Uh, so obviously got a lot of, you know, uh, experience working with them. Prior to that, though, I was, I, even for years prior to that, um, while I uh, was working on my master's uh, degree and master's program, uh, worked at a place where we did a lot of chemical assessments. And so I was doing a lot of the front end stuff, kind of evaluating people, kind of seeing where they fall on the map. Do they have a problem? Don't they have a problem? And uh, boy, you know, I guess from there, you know, it just kind of expanded and uh, I, I work with, well, you name it, I work with darn near every addiction uh, out there. Uh, I got people coming in with gambling addictions, uh, sex addictions, spending addictions, uh, online gaming addictions, uh, you, you name it, you know, people can get addicted to it, it would seem. And so uh, currently, and probably for the last 10 or 15 years, mostly been doing uh, again, probably more front-end work and back-end work. So the front-end work being those chemical assessments, trying to figure out you know, where people are at, do they need help or don't they need help, uh, as in like a treatment program. And then on the back-end, because I'm not a treatment program, I'm not a substitute for that, but I do see a lot of people uh, coming out of treatment programs who are looking for some additional help, additional assistance, sort of managing their sobriety, as well as dealing with some of the underlying issues that uh, drive their addictions, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point here. Yeah. And I would think that those underlying issues that drive the addiction 
Um, although, I mean, we have some research that's sort of saying a lot, some of it is really genetic, is probably typical to most people's sort of mental health and brain that we have a vulnerability to getting our needs met in unhealthy ways. Um, I wanted to focus our discussion today primarily on alcohol. A couple of reasons why I've become more curious about alcohol and alcohol addiction was how quickly Americans turned to alcohol during the pandemic as a coping strategy and really a culturally, you know, widespread coping strategy. And it kind of begged the question more and more, like why, as we have a culture, think alcohol will make our lives better. Um, before this, when I took time out as a stay-at-home mom, um, when I was doing more of that than my clinical work, I experienced over and over again this culture of, you know, drinking wine as a coping strategy for the difficulties of parenting. Um, and for me, I just was like, yeah, that seems really dangerous. And could, if I started doing that, it could lead me into a depression. Um, luckily, I guess I chose working out and working out gave me an alternative to getting some childcare support and a break from parenting. Um, so I was thinking that, you know, not only during the pandemic with this kind of increase of alcohol consumption as a form of coping, I also think that maybe people have this image or a stereotype of what someone with an alcohol addiction looks like, that they might be really low functioning, um, and they might not be that well versed in the reality that a lot of folks have addictions or alcohol addictions who are really high functioning and that um, maybe that problematic low functioning behavior doesn't happen until like the later stages of addiction. And I was just wondering, you know, have as someone who's worked in the field for a long time, do you have any observations about alcohol use in the culture? And have your thoughts changed about this, you know, through your times working in the field? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, a couple of interesting points you bring up there, Zan. And Boy, I, I tell you, I, I think alcohol is very culturally embedded, you know, in our society. Uh, I'm sure I'm no historian. I'm sure we could go back to uh, the, the 13, 14 hundreds, you know, in Europe, you know, very culturally embedded over there. Everybody came over here and they brought with them <laughs> their, alcohol. Their, their cultural norms and, you know, stuff around alcohol. Yes. And we had a brief little blip in the 1920s with prohibition, which failed miserably. Um, and, you know, I think, I think our, our government or society sort of gave up and just sort of resigned themselves to the fact that, yeah, this is very much a part of our culture. I mean, it is just interwoven in, in darn near everything, you know, it's such a, a huge social, you know, element and component. And obviously we're social creatures. And so not surprisingly, you know, every time we're out socializing, you know, people are having a drink or going out for drinks, or can I get you a drink, you know? Uh, it's just amazing, you know, if you if you really know what you're looking for and you're watching for it, you'll see it depicted in, you know, stories, uh, movies in particular, television shows. You know, there's always some critical point in a show or a movie, you know, where there's a big crisis and something has happened. And I got to tell you, to me, it seems like eight or nine out of ten times we see that person in the show reaching for a drink. You know, this is how they're going to cope, you know, with whatever the hardship is they're dealing with before they actually deal with it. Right. As though yeah. alcohol is just it's almost a necessity, you know, for me to be able to figure out how to deal with this and what I'm going to do. It's just everywhere. So, yeah, uh, 
the other part that you were talking about, you know, which is this, I don't know, f stereotype of, you know, uh, you know, the, the alcoholic. And I think, you know, a lot of people have this impression that, you know, it's this uh, homeless wino laying in the gutter with his brown paper sack, you know, that I think, you know, historically might have been, you know, a, a somewhat accurate, you know, depiction, maybe way back in the 40s or 50s, you know, before people were really looking into or trying to be more cognizant of or trying to intervene on, you know, addiction. I think in the past, it was largely ignored. It was swept under the rug. We didn't want to talk about it. We didn't want to think about it. I mean, hell, even up into the, the 80s, it wasn't at all uncommon, you know, uh, if you lived in a, you know, a smaller area, if you had too much to drink and the cops pulled you over, well, they just give you a ride home. Uh, you know, it was totally almost sort of socially accepted and sanctioned, you know, where now there's a growing intolerance for it, you know, uh, where there's much more DWIs and stuff like that going on. And with that, too, I think, you know, um, you know, through the, uh, the late 70s into the 80s, I don't know, maybe it was the Just Say No movement and the anti-drug movement that, you know, brought more awareness, you know, to the problems, you know, these chemicals and the you know, increasing intolerance of it. And so there's been greater, I think, uh, efforts, not only at education, but also early intervention. And so getting, you know, back to the, the point here, um, you know, with addiction, there's sort of an early, middle and late stages, you know, of addiction. And that, you know, wino in the gutter really represents those late stages, you know, of addiction where they've really destroyed their entire lives. They've kind of lost everything. Um, they're probably medically a train wreck. You know, their liver is, you know, probably a disaster, all that kind of stuff. Where these days, we're really more, much more, I think, catching people in the early stages of their addiction. You know, they got that first DWI uh, or their spouse is saying, hey, you know, I'm not going to put up with this crap anymore. Uh, whatever the case may be, you know, people are coming in and they're kind of looking into it. Um, and, you know, if there's that's the upside, if there's a downside, you know, I think it's that a lot of people aren't convinced because they're still carrying around that old stereotype of, you know, an alcoholic is somebody who's destroyed and ruined their lives. And I haven't destroyed and ruined my life. So I surely I can't be an alcoholic. Uh, when in fact, you know, many people are, we're just catching them earlier and earlier in those early stages of their addiction. So, you know, today's, you know, alcoholic probably looks a lot different than, you know, the alcoholic of yesteryear, although it can certainly end up there. Exactly. Yeah, I was looking up some statistics for today, and I was really even surprised. It talked about um, that adults with graduate degrees were spending nine times as much of their uh, of money on hard alcohol than their less formally educated counterparts, and it wasn't just the income that they had and the spending; it was that the participants who are spending that much money are combining alcohol with activities involving, you know, dining out restaurants, going on vacation, socializing with coworkers. And so that essentially people that have higher drinking rates are really among the people who are working versus people who are not working. Um, and that the rates of alcohol related deaths, although they're highest in men in general, the largest increase is in um, was among white women, and that the binge drinking among women ages thirty to forty four without children was the highest 
group of growing um, binge drinking. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the statistics are sort of showing the stereotype is not what we used to think it was. The good news is, is that we are intervening um, much sooner. So Chris, if I came to you um, as a, say, as a, I said, I'm kind of looking for therapy or I, and I'm kind of concerned about my drinking, you know, how would you go about working with me? Well, you know, on the front end, obviously, you know, regardless of why people are coming in, we do a thorough assessment, you know, we're kind of poke around and we kind of check out everything, kind of looking for any sort of red flags, you know, what's kind of going on with this person. Um, and, you know, certainly try to do a, a relatively, you know, uh, thorough screening, uh, you know, of kind of what's going on with their chemical use. Um, and again, if we're seeing some kind of red flags there, it's going to depend. You know, I got, I got a lot of people coming in, you know, they've got depression, they've got anxiety, or they've got anger problems, or they've got relationship problems. But if we also have, you know, a substance abuse issue going on, I always tell my clients, addiction trumps everything. Nothing gets better until that gets better. Because uh, again, in a lot of instances, you know, if I'm drinking too much, it's going to compound my depression or make my anxiety worse or my relationships worse or whatever the case may be. And so we really got to figure out, you know, is, is this, you know, chemical use problematic or not problematic, you know? And so I might spend another session doing a more thorough chemical assessment with somebody to really kind of dig in and look at what's going on and do we have a problem or not? Because if we do, we got to deal with that first. Uh, I adamantly believe nothing's going to get better until that addiction gets better first. Uh, it definitely has to be prioritized. You know, we can't put the cart before the horse. Yeah. Now, I remember when we began our training, there used to be sort of this addict, uh, distinction between what was alcohol abuse and dependency. And it sort of felt like, okay, if you had, if you qualified for alcohol dependency, you qualified maybe for treatment, but abuse, maybe not so much. And now I know that the model has shifted and alcohol, you know, I guess maybe problematic use is on a continuum. And I, I guess I'm trying to understand, you know, why do you think the paradigms changed and what, I mean, what is, what are the symptoms that people would maybe have that would get them an alcohol use disorder? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think the medical field as a whole has kind of shifted the, the their paradigm or their view of, you know, putting a lot of different things on a continuum or a spectrum. A lot of things don't fit in a nice, you know, simple box, you know, that didn't really rep represent or reflect reality. Um, one that I think has gotten a little bit of publicity and press, uh, you know, is like, autism spectrum disorder, right? You know, a lot of people talk about that where they used to have kind of distinct categories like Asperger's disorder and stuff like that. And they're kind of saying, hey, you know what? Things kind of fall on a spectrum, you know, of, of degree of impairment or de degree of severity. And, you know, alcohol and drug addiction is no different. Uh, in fact, they may have been leading the pack in that there was kind of an unspoken, you know, sort of spectrum there, again, with kind of differentiating, you know, abuse and dependence, but really you could kind of drop them down on a, on a spectrum. In fact, when I talk with my clients, you know, I kind of talk about, well, where do I fall on the map? And, and again, I don't, I don't necessarily call it a spectrum, you know, I kind of I broadly say, 
there's sort of four different levels of chemical use. You know, on the bottom, you have your abstainers. These are people who don't do anything. That's pretty cut and dry. Up from there, you have your social users. And again, this usually pertains to just alcohol. Uh, these are people who drink for the taste rather than the effect. Uh, we get into the abuse, right? So these are people who are using those chemicals for the effect that it's going to have. I want to get buzzed. I want to get high. I want to get, you know, ripped, whatever the case may be. Um, and, you know, being in the abuse category doesn't necessarily mean that I have a problem. I have plenty of people who abuse. In fact, I'm sure plenty of your listeners abuse from time to time. Uh, okay. It's the 4th of July. It's my buddy's bachelor party. You know, we're going to go out and we're going to tie on a good one. And then we get up into the dependence category. Um, and it's kind of a gray, fuzzy line between abuse and dependence. And that's really what we're trying to figure out in that chemical assessment is we're kind of trying to figure out, you know, do we have somebody here who's, you know, still has some element or degree of control, you know, albeit abusing, or have they crossed that line where they kind of lost control, it's kind of taking over, taking on a life of its own. And this is probably more that dependency. And like we were talking about earlier, Zan, you know, that dependency kind of falls then into kind of early, middle, and late stages, you know, from on the one extreme end to I don't use anything at all to that other extreme end, you know, of that wino in the gutter with the brown paper sack, you know, and, and kind of everything in between and trying to figure out, you know, where does each person kind of fall on that spectrum? Yeah, like, so maybe when you're getting into the dependency versus the abuse, that's when maybe you're heading into withdrawal effects or that tolerance or maybe kind of obsession or, you know, daily thinking about when the next time you can use will be, mm -hmm. um, yep, you know, withdrawal tends to be kind of an, a sort of an advanced, you know, uh, symptom. That's a pretty strong indicator, you know, of dependence. Um, okay. probably, you know, a couple of the more common ones that I hear that I, I am particularly on the lookout for, uh, is sort of a, this loss of control. You know, I got a lot of people who say, all right, tonight, I'm only going to have two drinks and then halfway through the night, I'm on, you know, beer number nine. And they're kind of yes. like, dang it, how the heck did that happen again? Where they're kind of increasingly losing control. It's kind of slipping away from them or getting away from them. Uh, that's a pretty big red flag. Uh, the other one that I look for are attempts to cut down or control or quit uh, for a while. I get a lot of people who say, all right, I'm going to quit for a month. And then, you know, 11 days in, they're right back at it. You know, they're just they aren't able to stick to, you know, their, their guidelines or their parameters. That's where we're starting to lose that element of control. That's where we're kind of start crossing that line from abuse to dependence. Dependence. One question I had, I felt like earlier in my training, which I, I mean, maybe was a little pre this binge drinking cultural phenomenon. It was like, if you had a blackout, that was sort of an indicator you're more along the abuse dependence than maybe just I go out and party. Can you tell our listeners what it really, what it means to have a blackout? Uh, sure. Yeah. You know, um, blacking out, you know, pro probably differentiating from passing out, right? You know, some people, drink much, they pass out, right? Which is essentially, I'm unconscious. I'm asleep, right? You know, uh, I'm no longer, you know, uh, awake anymore. Uh, to be differentiated from a blackout where, uh, basically, I'm walking, I'm talking, but I have no memory uh, the next day. Uh, people who have blackouts, they hear stories about themselves, and they're like, 
wait, what? I did what? I said what? Uh, and they have no memory of, you know, uh, what, what that experience was. Now, yes, that can be a, a big red flag, you know. Uh, again, a lot of people, they don't always know where their limit is or they cross that line. Again, not uncommon, they might, you know, pass out. Uh, blacking out tends to be, you know, suggestive of some tolerance. You know, I'm drinking with some regularity. You know, it's obviously impacting, you know, my brain and affecting my memory and stuff like that. But I'm still walking, I'm still talking, I'm still doing things, you know, unbeknownst to myself. Uh, so, you know, is it a slam dunk, you know, that this person's an al alcoholic? No, you know, but again, we're kind of looking at the degree and the frequency, you know, how often is this happening? Um, and that can obviously be a, a, an indicator of a pretty significant problem. Yeah, th thanks. Yeah, I was sort of thinking that, you know, if you were sort of like newly to drinking, you'd probably vomit or pass out before you would have a blackout so that it's got yeah, a very common. Yeah. yeah. People just don't know. They don't, you know, they, they don't know how to gauge that. They don't know that, you know, my, my liver will only metabolize, you know, one ounce of alcohol per hour. And so, you know, they have three shots in one hour and whoops, you know, suddenly it, it hits you. It hits you like a ton of bricks. You know, yes. that's very common with those, uh, you know, young drinkers, new drinkers, college drinkers, you know, you hear about alcohol poisoning or uh, all kinds of bad stuff, you know, uh, that can happen just because they don't really, they're not accustomed to it. Sadly, they haven't, I don't know what's good or bad, they haven't had enough practice. Yes, yes. So um, talking about alcohol in the brain, what is alcohol doing in the brain? Like if, if we're talking and education is a part of you know, talking with um, someone with an addiction problem, what do you talk about in terms of like maybe dopamine or the different um, neurotransmitters or whatever it is that's happening in the brain? Could you talk about that? Sure. Um, yeah, it's doing, a, you know, it's doing a whole slew of things. Again, usually, you know, my liver can't keep up, right? You know, liver can only, you know, metabolize so much alcohol so fast. And at which point now it's just coursing through, you know, my bloodstream and it's hitting, hitting the brain. Okay. Uh, and when it gets up there. It starts to, you know, impact and, you know, impair. Um, basically what it's doing is it's kind of disrupting, you know, some of the, those neural pathways, right? Without getting too boring and technical, right? All those neurons are communicating with each other and the alcohol is inhibiting, you know, some of that communication. And that can happen in a, on a variety of fronts. The usual stuff, you know, that you see people when they start to get tipsy, uh, their, their speech is kind of slurred. It's not as fluid and clean and smooth, you know, uh, or their balance and their coordination starts to get impaired. They're kind of wobbly or stumbly uh, kind of stuff. Uh, memory, you know, can definitely, you know, also get, you know, impacted. Uh, obviously, kind of my, my higher level thinking, you know, my problem solving skills, you know, uh, and that kind of stuff. It, it all kind of starts to go out the window. And, you know, and obviously can kind of have a sort of an exponential, you know, uh, effect, depending on how much I'm drinking and with what frequency. Uh, but yes, definitely releasing all kinds of dopamine as well. So, you know, again, there's that positive reinforcement, right? dopamine you know it's hitting those pleasure centers of the brain you know and again here's maybe where we kind of circle back to some of that genetic stuff you know okay again they you know this is all kind of you know kind of theory and conjecture they don't have a real good way you know of kind of proving this but you know again we we believe that there are some people who are you know, obviously genetically predisposed 
and some of that wiring in their brain, you know, uh, their little dopamine, you know, receptors, you know, are activated to a, to a much higher extent or a much higher degree than, you know, maybe somebody else. And so it's a really powerful reinforcer, right? You know, not only yes. do they just have the natural euphoria that comes with, you know, drinking too much and, you know, all that dopamine getting released. Uh, I mean, it's really hitting those, you know, those pleasure centers like, you know, you can't believe. Uh, and so they walk away thinking, wow, that was the greatest. That was amazing. Spread, right. I've never, this is, this is my new favorite thing to do, you know, <laughs> uh, where, you know, a lot of people are, kind of sick or they're kind of hung over their next day and they're like, oh, that sucked. I don't know. I'm not going to do that again, you know, uh, for a long time. And so, again, I think there are some people, you know, who are, unfortunately, they're just kind of predisposed or kind of set up for it, not just genetically, but again, just some of the, the chemistry that goes on in our brains. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, and so, what what I was also thinking about is that I think that's fascinating. So some people are just sort of genetically vulnerable to um, an increase in dopamine. And then my understanding is that eventually with then a lot of drinking, then the, the brain says, oh, you're having too much fun or something. There's too much dopamine coming in. So we're going to shut down some of those receptor sites. And so the person is trying to get back to that higher level of dopamine, that higher level of reward, and it's not coming? Yeah. Um, yeah or is that with other drugs? Or, yeah, uh -huh. yeah, they talk about this with, you know, a lot of times in treatment centers, you know, because, because you know, for our heavy chronic users, right, you know, a lot of times you hear people saying that they're kind of chasing that first high, you know, uh, when all those receptors were available and active, right, and they were all lighting up, right? Wow, that was the, you know, the greatest high or, you know, the, you know, the best, you know, euphoria, you know, that I've ever experienced. Well, when we're using regularly, you know, the, the brain, the body, it, it's all kind of driven towards, they, they call it homeostasis, right, the status quo. And so if things are getting, you know, overactivated, believe it or not, yeah, they'll kind of, your brain will start killing off some of these receptors or shutting down some of these receptors, right? Saying, well, th this isn't normal. This isn't right. We're not supposed to be at this level. Um, and so, yeah, you know, people, you know, they, they are they are kind of chasing that first hype, but they'll never be able to capture it, right? Because their body is compensating. It's adjusting. Yes, it's, it's adjusting. Some of these different, you know, receptors. Now, can they regenerate and regrow? Absolutely. They talk about that in treatment too. You know, when people sober up, it, it feels like the bottom has fallen out. You know, I, I probably got like two dopamine receptors left and boy, you know, there's not a lot of joy life is not that pleasure going on in my life, you know, yeah. but your brain will again adjust, you know, once I sober up, you know, it'll start regenerating, you know, some of those, you know, receptors again, uh, again, it's just trying to keep people balanced. It's trying to keep them even. Uh, and so, you know, that's a kind of an unusual, but, you know, very real phenomenon, you know, that occurs. Yeah. I mean, I know in all that social media research now that they're doing like, with Facebook and they have been able to sort of, I mean, that they created some of those feedback systems within social media to hit the dopamine sites. Like they know that people like, if you get a like, it's like, boom, there's a little dopamine. Yep. And then it just keeps you coming back and back and back and checking and checking. So yeah. I'm yeah. like, if we're you like can't. The, we're like, like the rat pressing the lever in the box, <laughs> right? It's, it's kind of sad. Um, oh. Okay, and then I got to tell you this other really cool thing that I read about. I don't know if you've heard about it, but 
in the temporal, like left parietal lobe, there's something in our brains that lets us know what other people's judgments are towards us. So I'm thinking, hey, this is what you're thinking of me in this interaction. And they think that alcohol like causes that part of the brain to go offline a little. And that might sort of explain part of that, you know, people sort of drink and they think, oh, this is the real me or they feel freer to be themselves or to, I think what happens to me sometimes is like, I find myself disclosing, I'll be like telling people stuff that I normally wouldn't tell them. And I was like, oh, that's what's happening. And then you, the next day you're like, oh, maybe overshared there. <laughs> yes. Well, there's no doubt that, you know, alcohol is definitely a disinhibitor. Uh, it lowers those inhibitions, you know, well, yes, we'll share too much or say too much or uh, we, we lose some of those filters uh, that yes. we really have, you know. Uh, so, yeah, you know, there's, there's definitely something to that. Um. Okay, so a lot of times family, friends, partners say, so say I, I am a concerned family member, friend or partner, and I come to see you and I say, you know, I'm really worried about my spouse's drinking. How do you talk with those folks about, you know, next steps or what to do? Sure. Well, it's a balancing act. You know, uh, I get a lot of folks, you know, certainly that come in for that very issue. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, they're, they, they want me to diagnose, you know, their partner through them. I'm oh, okay. Yep. Person, you know, they want to know, well, do they have a problem or don't they? I'm like, well, I, I can't say, you know, this is your report. It's, you know, not necessarily, you know, their report, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of these symptoms, you know, you, you probably can't speak to. I, I need to talk to them. So they're usually a little bit frustrated. Now I try to balance that with a whole lot of education. You know, I can certainly educate people, you know, about addiction and on addiction. Um, so they have a better idea of, you know, am I maybe dealing with this or not? And then I also try to get them to focus on themselves. You know, we could probably do a whole other, you know, uh, podcast on codependency, you know, and I get a lot of people who get kind of lost, you know, in that stuff and they start losing themselves. They become so obsessed with their, their partner and their problem. So, but broadly speaking, right, you know, just for your, the sake of your listeners, um, as a kind of a general rule of thumb, you know, you could you can Google the the different criteria. Some of them, you know, you and I have already talked about, Zan, so your, your listeners are already aware. Uh, and they can Google the other symptoms, you know, kind of these red flags that differentiate abuse and dependence. Um, but as a real kind of broad general rule, they, whoever they are, the experts, uh, say, there's a couple of rules of thumb. Uh, for men, we say four and 14. If I'm having more than four drinks per sitting or more than 14 drinks per week, it tends to be indicative of a problem. For women, they get the short end of the stick. Uh, their numbers are three and seven. So if I'm having more than three drinks in one sitting or more than seven drinks per week, it tends to be indicative of a problem. Now, does that guarantee, you know, that they're an alcoholic? No, it does not. There's a much, you know, more complicated, you know, thing that goes into evaluating that. But if you're looking for just kind of a general benchmark, you know, of might my partner have a problem or not? If you're observing and you're aware of, you know, kind of what their general consumption is, that should give you a pretty good idea of, uh-oh, we might have a problem or oh, maybe not. Uh, yeah, I find those numbers fascinating. And I also think 
it's really important for women to know too. Like if you're dating someone who is drinking that much, your numbers, I mean, they can have 14 and you get, you get seven. So if you're trying to play catch up, you're going to develop a disorder <laughs> a lot quicker. Yes, than absolutely. Your dating partner or your partner, if you're dating a guy, um, what are the basic types of treatment? Um, so in terms of treatment, you know, again, again, kind of depends on, you know, where I fall on the spectrum, right? So if we're talking about abuse, uh, you know, I certainly see a lot of, you know, abusers. Well, I see, here's an example. I see a lot of DWIs, you know, a lot of people have gotten DWIs, they're in trouble with the law. You know, does that mean that they have a problem, you know, and they should go to, to treatment? No, not necessarily. They'll come in, they'll do that assessment. I got a lot of people who just had a bad night, made some bad decisions, you know, and are paying the consequences for it. Uh, but they're, you know, clearly not, you know, an alcoholic. But in those instances, a lot of times we'll recommend like an education class. Uh, frankly, that's part of what the courts, you know, want to see. They want people to be smarter. They want to get educated. There's lots of different, you know, programs out there that provide great education for, you know, people who, you know, have had a problem, you know, it's gotten them into a little bit of trouble or who just want to be smarter. Uh, I've sent a lot of uh, teenagers there. I've got parents who bring their teens in, you know, they're concerned about their use. And again, these are teens. So, you know, they're invincible and they don't have a problem and they're probably not, you know, an alcoholic, but they might be well on the road. Uh, and so, you know, we'll send them to an education class just to get a little bit more smarter about what are these chemicals, what do they do, how do they work, what do I need to know, you know, so I can be a better, I don't know, or at least a more informed consumer uh, of these, you know, possible chemicals. Now, if we talk about addiction and somebody's already crossed that line, then yes, you know, then we're talking usually more about uh, treatment, you know, or what most people, you know, uh, have heard of as treatment. And with that, there's sort of an inpatient treatment and there's an outpatient treatment. Uh, most people are doing an outpatient treatment program, which just means I don't go away for 28 days, you know, like we see in the movies all the time. Uh, I, I'm usually working, I go to work, I, I, you know, I'm staying at home, I'm, you know, living my life. And a typical outpatient program might go for, you know, four to six weeks. Uh, maybe it's, you know, Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays from 6 to 9 p.m. And I do that for about four to six weeks. You know, it's pretty intensive. You know, it's a lot of stuff uh, that I'm getting in a fairly short period of time. And that's kind of their treatment experience. Uh, and then a lot of times they'll have uh, what's referred to as aftercare or continuing care. Well, they'll keep going for a while, uh, maybe just once a week, you know, for a couple of hours. And they'll do that for another, you know, eight to 12 weeks, just for some added support, you know, make sure they're staying on track. Um, if somebody's, you know, kind of got a chronic problem or, you know, outpatient isn't working for them, they can't seem to stay sober, they keep drinking, uh, you know, during their outpatient program, then they might get referred to an inpatient program, uh, which is, again, more like a Hazelden type setting where you go away for 28 days. Um, and uh, it's, you know, very structured, it kind of removes access and uh, get, allows me the time to, you know, get some sobriety under my belt. Uh, so that I can, you know, hopefully get, get back to, to normal living. A lot of people will also come out of an inpatient program and step down to an outpatient program. Uh, so after 28 days, then they might do a, an outpatient program for another four to six weeks. So uh, they're trying to give them all the support, you know, that they need. Everybody's a little bit unique or different in terms of what they need. Yeah. Could you say something about early sobriety versus maybe an ongoing you know, maybe after 10 years of sobriety, I'm thinking about 
Say someone's partner just completes the after outpatient treatment. Mm-hmm. And so they're sort of maybe newly, they haven't used for 90 days, but you and I know that, you know, change, relationship change, personality changes, any of those kind of, you know, changes can take years or m- definitely months. Mm-hmm. How, how does that vary? Like after the aftercare, do they sort of say, you know, we really recommend that you do some therapy or a 12 step program, um, yeah, and again, your thoughts know, about that? Yeah, you know, the answer there again is probably going to be it depends, right? You know, everybody's unique. Everybody's got different issues. You know, um, sometimes it comes down to you know, I don't know. Sometimes you know, you you, you hear about folks hitting bottom. You know, uh, they, they they've really had kind of this eye opening experience. You know, whether that was that DWI or my wife left me or I lost my job. I mean, it could be anything. Uh, where they kind of go like, holy cow. I've got a problem. I need help. I'm ready to go. You know, and, and some of those folks, boy, they just almost turn on a dime and never look back, you know, and they're just yeah. really, really good, you know. Um, and I get, but, you know, we get a lot of other people who are kind of on the fence. They're not super motivated. They're not 100% okay. sold on the idea that I have a problem, you know. Um, and, you know, a lot of times the treatment centers will kind of be able to feel that out because they're spending a lot of time, you know, with, with a person. Uh, and so they'll kind of get a sense of, you know, who's really motivated and, you know, who doesn't really want to be here, or who doesn't, you know, isn't really sure they have a problem. You know, I get a lot of, um, we get a lot of, you know, drug users, you know, who say, yeah, okay, maybe I'll, I'll stop, you know, using meth or heroin, but I can still drink, you know, uh, you know, it's like, oh boy. You know, we got somebody here, you know, probably needs a little more structure, a little more support, you know, is not really kind of getting that, hey, if I'm addicted to one chemical, I'm probably going to be addicted to all chemicals, you know. And so they'll try to identify those folks and, you know, kind of steer them, you know, encourage them to, you know, maybe get involved in uh, AA or NA or 12-step, you know, types of support groups, you know. Uh, Or sure, you know, maybe see a psychologist that has some specialty in addiction who can kind of do some of that sobriety management stuff. But yes, getting back to your original question, it's tough, you know, for for a lot of people in early recovery. um, They're having a really hard go, you know, of things. Sobriety is a a challenge, you know. They've been kind of living this addictive lifestyle for oftentimes years, sometimes decades, you know, and it's all they know. You know, it, it, for a lot of people, it kind of becomes their primary coping mechanism. Uh, and so, you know, you sober them up and, and suddenly all these feelings are coming back and I, you know, that I've been numbing out and I don't know how to deal with all these intense emotions. And now I have to, you know, deal with, you know, stressors and try to solve problems. I can't just drink them away anymore. Uh, they get very overwhelmed, you know. So uh, it takes, I think, a lot of people a while, you know, to kind of develop uh, and learn some of those skills um, to be able to kind of cope more effectively, you know, in life and in relationships, you know, and it gets easier over time. Again, you know, your point of, you know, five or 10 years down the road. Yeah. You know, a lot of these people will say, oh, yeah, you know, do I, do I still miss it occasionally? Maybe not really. You know, is life as hard as it was when I was newly sober? Oh, God, no. You know, it's much easier, you know, and again, they've they've integrated and they've developed a lot of these, you know, uh, skills and, you know, uh, ways of dealing with life. So, of course, it's gotten easier for them. Yeah. I mean, it feels like it's sort of two pronged for me. I think about it like if I'm using alcohol, 
in a way that's really abusive or dependency, I and I quit. I'm gonna have to figure out how I how to have fun or like in, in, in have a good and meaningful life. And then I also have to figure out what the heck I was trying to numb mm-hmm. or run from, run from, run from. Sorry. So yeah. you know, was that trauma? Did I have some sort of underlying mental health issue? Um, I just think that probably uh, the, these folks and their families just need so much support. And I'm hoping that they can figure out different ways of, of getting it, you know, whether that's, you know, listening to podcasts or going to 12 step programs or, you know, mm-hmm. finding uh, a culture and a community that is sober. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, definitely an adjustment period, not only for the person who's got the problem, but yes, even their family members, a lot of treatment programs even have a, a family program, you know, uh, where they'll they'll come for you know three four days or a week you know kind of while their 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 partner is you know going through treatment just to educate the families like again help them understand what is addiction you help them watch out be on the lookout for that codependency stuff make sure uh, you know that they know how to be supportive and what that looks like so yeah I mean it's definitely it affects. It, they call it a family disease because it doesn't just affect the, you know, the person, it affects everybody around them. And there's a learning curve, you know, involved for everybody when, when we're trying to, you know, right the ship and get people, you know, healthy again. Yeah. You know, as a psychologist working with folk, folks say um, they're in recovery for some time, do they identify with you or do you identify with them personality traits or patterns or ways of relating that you think are more common among people with addiction? Uh, yeah, you know, for sure. You know, again, everybody's unique, you know, and when we talk about addiction, you know, there's lots of underlying drivers. You mentioned, you know, some being, you know, mental health issues, you know, I don't know how to cope with my anxiety, you know, they, they go after the liquid courage, you know, uh, or they're depressed and they're just trying to numb out those feelings, you know. Um, I got some people, it's just stress relief, you know, again, they just don't have the good coping mechanisms. You hear that all the time. Well, you know, I come home from work and I just need to unwind, you know, uh, I just need to relax, you know, a little bit, you know, again, which usually speaks to kind of, you know, not the healthiest, you know, coping mechanisms. Believe it or not, I got some people, it's as simple as boredom. Uh, well, I just didn't have really anything else to do or, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of friends. And so this is just kind of what I did. You know, uh, I get adrenaline junkies. You know, they just really love the euphoria. It's as simple as that. They don't have skeletons in the closet or a whole lot of baggage. They just <laughs> right. really like getting drunk or high, you know. So, again, everybody's, you know, kind of different, kind of unique, you know, Um Figuring out some of the, you know, those, those underlying variables. And then, you know, sure, there's also, you know, I suppose some things that are kind of part and parcel to, you know, a lot of, lot of people, not everybody, but a good, you know, chunk of people in, uh, who are dealing with addictions, you know, and part of this, I don't know if it's a, a byproduct of the addiction or, you know, if it was a, a pre-existing personality trait. But, yeah, there's definitely some stuff, you know, that... I think evolves or gets amplified, you know, as a result of that addiction. Addiction is a very isolating, you know, disease. It's frankly kind of a very selfish disease. It's kind of, you know, all about me, you know, um, because there's a lot of denial. There's a lot of, you know, manipulation and deflection and, you know, things that go on in part to kind of perpetuate the addiction. There can be a lot of entitlement. There can be some self-pity, you know, there's a whole kind of laundry list of things that, 
hopefully, usually they kind of start to dissipate and disappear, you know, once people are sobering up. But some of them do persist, you know, into their sobriety. And then, yes, we identify and we work on some of those little some of those traits and uh, character flaws. Yeah, like I was even thinking about, con- like, say, conflict avoidant or ways of dealing with conflict. And I see this, you know, not necessarily just with alcohol addiction, but, you know, ways that we rationalize behaviors that are sort of toxic, like, you know, I work a lot, I deserve to spend a lot, spend this money, or um, it's okay for me to be a little irresponsible here or there, like, you know, instead of sort of addressing the issue in my life, or maybe the conflict in the relationship, I sort of deal with it sideways. And I do this, this other behavior over here, compartmentalized off and rationalize it, that I'm kind of entitled to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of just look for those types of dynamics, even in people without alcohol. Um, so in terms of saying and to telling our listeners, um, what would be the one thing you would encourage someone to do if they wanted to start looking at or evaluating their own relationship with alcohol? Um, well, you know, here's the one way to think about it. Um, okay. and, I, and I kind of just was just kind of addressing some of these. Um, <clears throat> part of what I think, you know, any, anybody, you know, needs to take a look at is what function does it serve? What purpose, you know, does it serve, you know, for me? Um, and again, I, there, I think there's kind of a continuum or a spectrum. I think on the healthier end, you know, of the continuum and spectrum uh, would be, you know, it's social, uh, it's recreational, it's celebratory. You know, to me, those are kind of healthier motives, if you will, for drinking. Uh, but when we start getting into the unhealthy motives, boredom, stress relief, escapism, right? Uh, that's when we're probably much more at risk, you know, for developing a problem. Uh, so I think it's important to really, you know, kind of take an honest, you know, inventory, look yourself in the mirror and say, why, you know, why, why do I want this drink right now? What's this really about? You know, what's, what's the underlying motive here? And is it healthy, you know, or is it maybe a little bit unhealthy? Um, and you can kind of use that as a basis for, you know, trying to do a little self-reflection and self-evaluation and, and hopefully keep you on the right side of the line. Um where I don't have a problem and you won't have to come see me. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and if they do, I'll leave information in the show notes. Um, cause I think we have, a, a, a quite a few or a few clinicians on staff that do chemical dependency evaluations yep. at IPC. So I will leave that contact information there. And I so appreciate your time. I know you're so super busy and this Absolutely. has just been super fun and just so much, um, value in this information and getting it out to our listeners so that we can sort of just, you know, just be a little bit more mindful or think a little bit more critically in like what you said, in making decisions around our alcohol use. Absolutely. And I appreciate your having me here today, Zan, and hopefully our information will will help some of your listeners. Great. Thanks, Chris. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us this week on Talking Your Way to Change. You can also visit our Facebook page. You can subscribe to the show on Anchor or iTunes so that you never miss an episode. If you found value in this show, we would appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or you could just simply tell a friend. I need to alert everyone that this podcast is not meant as a substitution for mental health treatment.
So although the podcast deals with psychotherapy, this is not your psychotherapy. Okay, thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Dr. Banker.